Bulletproof Systems, your podcast for discussion of primary care innovation, payment reform, healthcare policy, and more. I'm Audrey Provenzano. This week, we are joined by Seth Berkowitz to talk about his research examining the association between food insecurity and health outcomes. Seth is a primary care physician, instructor of medicine, and is on faculty in the Division of General Internal Medicine and the Diabetes Research Center at Massachusetts General Hospital. Seth's research interests include population health management, food insecurity, cost-related medication underuse, and the impact of adverse social circumstances on chronic disease management. His goal is to develop and disseminate interventions and care delivery models that address social and economic needs. Today, he joins us to talk about a recent collaboration funded by an award from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation with Community Servings. Community Servings is a Boston-based nonprofit organization dedicated to bringing medically tailored meals to chronically ill adults. The study aims to assess whether individuals receiving the medically tailored meals have lower rates of inpatient hospitalization, ED utilization, and medical expenditures. Seth and I talk about food insecurity and health outcomes and what drew Seth into studying this topic what some of the poor health outcomes that are known to be associated with food insecurity, and how clinicians can utilize this information in the clinic. We go on to talk about Seth's recent award from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, jointly with Community Servings, for a study called Food is Medicine Approach on Health. Lastly, he talks about how he sees his work tying into future payment models. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher, which makes the show easier for others to find, and share us on social media. We tweet at ROS Podcast and are on Facebook at facebook.com slash review systems. Please drop us a line at contact at rospod.org. We'd love to hear from you. Seth, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Yeah, of course. A lot of your research looks at the relationship between food insecurity and health outcomes and chronic disease. Can you talk a little bit about what drew you into studying this topic? I think it it really grew out of being a primary care doctor. I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, when I was in residency, which was a, a primary care residency, I was impressed by how much I was learning in the hospital and just with sort of the technological side of medicine and, you know, we're doing organ transplantations and uh, bone marrow transplants and, you know, doing really advanced cancer therapy and really advanced intensive care. And then I'd go over to my primary care clinic and I'd have people whose, you know, diabetes was still uncontrolled because they hadn't been able to follow a healthy diet or they hadn't been able to lose weight. And they knew what they needed to do. And and from talking with them, it sounded like they wanted to, to make these changes, but they just really weren't able to. And so, I just got interested in the idea of, you know, why um, are, you know, some of the things that seem like they would be the simplest um, things to do, some of the some of the hardest, while at the same time we're, you know, making um, really impressive advances in, uh, in medicine and other areas. Can you tell listeners who might not be familiar uh, a little bit about the kind of poor health outcomes that have been linked to food insecurity and also what uh, food insecurity actually is? Sure. So food insecurity is um, really about the uncertain access to nutritious foods uh, for financial reasons. So um, a a quip that I sometimes use when I started thinking about food insecurity, I really thought it was about the food um, and sort of the changes in diet that come with that. Mm -hmm. But I think a really a large part of it is the insecurity, actually. So, um, you know, people people may never actually get to the point where they're skipping meals or don't have enough to eat, but it's it's the not being sure 
sure as to whether their food budget is going to make it till the end of the month or things like that that I think really lead to some changes in people's behavior um, and their mindset that are at the root of a lot of the health consequences we think are related to food insecurity. So, um, so I think a lot of what happens when you have this worry about whether, you know, your food budget is going to last, how can we stretch this out, is that it, it just makes it harder to um, make the kind of changes that, that people often need to stay healthy in terms of both, um, you know, both the food quality itself, but also, you know, a lot of times people have to deal with trade-offs between um, paying for food versus medication. Mm-hmm. A lot of times people are you know, using their um, food budget as one component of sort of larger household expenses. And so I think the uncertainty really kind of winds up inserting itself into a lot of that decision-making. And so the the consequences go beyond just the actual foods consumed. In terms of um, some of the health conditions that have been um, associated with food insecurity, um, I kind of put them into two camps. I think there's one type of... um, uh, or there are several uh, several examples, but sort of one category where we think there's probably a very clear relationship between um, the food insecurity itself and either the development of or the exacerbation of, of the illness. And so things we put in, in that category, I'd say, are obesity, which is, um, you know, somewhat of a, a paradox in some ways because, you know, people, when you first hear about food insecurity, say, well, you know, if they're having trouble getting enough to eat, why, why would there be obesity? But again, I think a lot of it is the sort of insecurity and the behavior changes around that. And then things like diabetes, high blood pressure, and then some of the consequences of those things like heart disease and, and chronic kidney disease and, the, and that kind of stuff. So that's one category. There's another category of situations where, you know, I don't think they're caused by food insecurity per se, but if you have food insecurity and these conditions, there can, they can really interact to lead to health consequences. And so a situation that might be a good example of that is say someone is undergoing chemotherapy for um, you know, their breast cancer or their colon cancer or something like that. I don't think the food insecurity caused the breast cancer or caused the colon cancer, but for you to recover as well as possible from your cancer treatments, for it to kill off the cancer cells and not do um, damage to the, or, or do as little damage as possible to the rest of your body, you really need to have your nutritional status be as good as possible, you really need to be able to adhere to all your medications and all those things. And so when you throw food insecurity in that mix, there wind up being more health consequences than, than there would otherwise be. So it may not be causally related to why you're in that situation, sure. but that doesn't necessarily mean there aren't health consequences to having food insecurity in that situation. Yeah. In some of the literature, there's, they've described that um, this seems to affect women more than men. Can you talk a little bit about that, specifically with regard to obesity? Yeah, so that's right. So in in a lot of the studies that, that we've seen, there does tend to be a stronger association between food insecurity and obesity in women than men. Um, I think there are a couple things that, that could be going on, although I'll freely admit, I, you know, there's not a definitive answer, so, so some of this is speculation. Um, one is a lot of these studies, and this is true of a lot of the food insecurity literature uh, to date so far, although this is starting to change, are, are cross-sectional. So they kind of get only a, a single point in time. And so what we're seeing um, you know, uh, at a single point in time is their current social situation, but their health situation is an accumulation of, you know, a lot of things that have happened over people's um, lifetime. And so, you know, to get to obesity, it, you know, wasn't that you had, uh, you know, poor diet yesterday or the day before. It's, it's occurred over a number of years. Um, one thing that that we think could, so there could be, uh, there could be a true physiologic difference between, mm-hmm 
you know, men and women when it comes to food insecurity. That's a possibility. But another possibility, and one that seems more plausible to me, may have to do with the social circumstances that lead to people being uh, food insecure. So we know for women, when they're food insecure, women who are food insecure are often the um, head of a household with children um, as sort of the sole financial provider in a lot of situations. Um, there are qualitative studies where, where people really describe sort of sacrificing, um, you know, what they know is healthy for them to kind of make their dollars stretch and sort of buffer their children from experiencing um, food insecurity and, and that kind of thing. Men, when they're um, in food insecure situations, sometimes it's because they're, they're also the head of a household or, or something like that. But a lot of other situations, and probably more commonly than women when they're food insecure, it's men who are... Um, you know, sort of by themselves, maybe a little more socially isolated. Um, some suggestion that there there may be higher rates of um, substance use disorders um, in the male food insecure population compared with the female food insecure population. And so then you may have a situation where there are a number of other, you know, countervailing influences on on their um, on their weight in addition to the food insecurity. And so I, I think some of what we might see in the difference is kind of the difference in the social circumstances that lead to food insecurity, perhaps more so than true sort of physiologic differences between how men and women um, respond to being in food insecurity. But, but that's somewhat speculation at this point. Okay. Many of our listeners are clinicians. And um, sure. how would you recommend that they use this type of information in their clinic? So, you know, there are screening tools for food insecurity. Um, and there are actually a couple of health systems that are already doing so. I believe Kaiser and Leahy. What are your recommendations about it? Sure. So I guess the first thing I want to say is, you know, so I'm a, I'm a primary care doctor myself, and the last thing I want to do is um, suggest that people take on, you know, some big uh, task or, or a big screening project without sort of a clear plan about what they're, they're going to do with the information. Um, so I actually don't think a routine screening program is something that, you know, an individual doctor, um, you know, would want to implement on their own. I, I very much applaud the health systems that kind of take it on at that level, and I think it really needs a, a systemic response. I think there needs to be, you know, organized screening, sort of organized referral pathways when you identify positive um, findings, um, and, and, you know, that that response really needs to be as part of what I would think of as kind of population health management or at at sort of a health system level. that being said, if, if you're working in a um, in a system that doesn't have that yet, um, you know, so a your, op- your options may be to sort of advocate and and uh, try to do that. But it, it, you know, if you're just trying to get through your day and seeing your patients, though, I don't think screening in the sense of you know, kind of. Uh, asking everyone um, these questions, um, you know, without any prompting whatsoever is necessarily something an individual clinician can do. I do think it makes sense to think about, well, are there situations where at, a, at an individual level I may want to ask these questions to sort of the difference between, a, you know, a screening colonoscopy for, versus a diagnostic colonoscopy? Are there some sort of clinical triggers that would make me want to inquire about this? And so I'll just give an example of a couple situations that, that I see in primary care. So we know that if someone has diabetes and food insecurity, um, especially towards the end of the month, tends to be a risky time when it comes to hypoglycemia or, lo- or low blood sugar. Um, often because people's eating patterns shift, they may eat less, but their medication regimen usually stays the same. So for someone who's uh, both has diabetes and is on medicines that may be associated with low blood sugar, so not just metformin, but say they're on a sulfonylurea or insulin or something like that, that might be a good situation to ask about food insecurity um, because you might actually adjust your treatment 
plan, um, especially at the end of the month. You might say, hey, you know, if things are tight at the end of the month, call in and let's titrate your medicines. You might even come up with a situation in advance. Similarly, if you, um, you know, have been doing um, counseling on making, you know, sort of dietary changes or exercise changes or, you know, people are trying to get their blood pressure under control and they're also overweight or something like that and things just aren't working or people aren't responding to their medications, that might be a time to sort of hone in a little bit more and say, you know, is part of what's going on here that, you know, you're not able to afford healthier foods? Are you, you know, maybe not filling your medications because you're, you need to use that money to buy food, that kind of thing. So I think there are sort of targeted situations there. I'll just mention too, in terms of um, how you might screen. So the, the sort of most official comprehensive um, assessment tool for food insecurity is uh, put out by the uh, USDA, the Department of Agriculture. It's called the Food Security Survey Module. It's 18 total items. Um, you don't have, yeah, you don't have to do that as a clinician. So we now actually have uh, well-validated two-item screeners that are basically the first two items from that big um, picture. So kind of equivalent to the PHQ2 and the mm-hmm. PHQ9 at the depression world. So uh, validated two-item screeners. Um, sometimes called the hunger vital sign, um, which was uh, um, validated and sort of popularized by a group called Children's Health Watch Boston. But if you Google hunger vital sign, um, you can um, turn up the freely available two-item screener. And so it's actually very easy to implement um, these two questions in in practice, whether you want to use it truly as part of a screening program or as part of a more quote-unquote sort of diagnostic workup for specific situations where you think this may be playing a role. It's a very easy-to-use tool. There's been a lot of talk in the food insecurity and public health literature about the possibility of changing some of the rules for SNAP uh, or food stamps around sugar-sweetened beverages. So there was a paper um, that came out in Health Affairs using some modeling that suggested that eliminating sugar-sweetened beverages from being able to use with food stamps would significantly reduce the rate of obesity and type 2 diabetes. Uh, So what do you think about this idea? Is this, you think, too much nanny state and people should be allowed to choose how they you know, what they what they drink, regardless of if they're on food stamps or not? Or do you think this is kind of good public health policy? Yeah, I think this is a really complicated um, question. So, I mean, I, I think I, the, the, I read that article. I, I think the modeling assumptions are reasonable, and so more or less I buy the conclusions from it. But as you hit on, you know, there are other issues um, to consider here besides just the potential health impacts. So I think one sort of fundamental question um, that, you know, we need to come to more consensus on is whether SNAP is a, is a health program or sort of a, a social safety net benefit. Um, and and I'll contrast SNAP in this case with WIC, the, the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children. Mm-hmm. So that was very clearly from the beginning designed as a health program. There's a very limited bundle of um, foods that you can purchase with your WIC benefits. Um, they're specifically targeted for um, basically some, um, a, a lot of them, childhood development goals. So, you know, um, improving birth weight status, um, having uh, lowering rates of anemia and that kind of thing. So that, that was from the beginning really conceived as a health program and has a lot of limitations on what can be purchased uh, or what your benefits can be redeemed for, um, for that reason. SNAP historically was designed differently. I mean, so it, it, part of the reason it's run out of the U.S. Department of Agriculture is, um, 
one component of it was sort of uh, ways to use up agricultural surplus or, mm-hmm. or, or to provide a market for um, goods raised by U.S. farmers. Um, and then a lot of its justification was really in sort of the social safety net sense of, you know, look, you know, there are folks living in America. We have a wealthy economy. They should not, um, you know, face starvation or something like that. So in that sense in which, you know, the health outcomes um, were really not central to the justification, then, um, then you know, you can make the argument, hey, you know, this is just sort of a, a benefit that people get for living in our society. It's a way for us to, um, you know, prevent the problems of, uh, of hunger and starvation, to reduce food insecurity. And so people can, you know, sort of make their own decisions there in the same way that if you get the, you know, EITC as an earned income uh, tax credit or if you get a, a refund on your um, income taxes or take a mortgage income tax deduction, you know, that's just money that you get to keep and you can decide what you want to do with it. Um, there's another strain, though, and I think the, the public health strain is, well, you know, could we optimize benefits in, in a particular way um, to, uh, to improve people's health, and a, a particularly because the same folks who are often on SNAP are, um, you know, at high risk of poor health outcomes because of the large socioeconomic and uh, racial and ethnic disparities in health that we see in the U.S., then I think that's a very reasonable question to ask. But I, I think it's a little bit of more nuanced just because we um, – you know, again, need to be clear on, on what sort of the purpose of the program is. And I don't think there's a, there's a particular reason that, um, you know, SNAP uh, should uh, be focused on health outcomes while, you know, something like the, you know, mortgage interest tax sure. deduction or something like that is not. I mean, if these are all government programs and the idea is that, you know, this is public money that's being, you know, distributed to particular people and we should have a say in the health because we might be on the hook for their health outcomes, then I think you could make that argument about a number of programs. I'm for, I mean, you know, as a, as a physician and someone concerned about public health, I, I'm totally for that, but, I, but I'm not sure that, um, you know, singling out um, SNAP as one program that it needs to apply to while not applying it to, to programs that are maybe more, you know, differentially beneficial to middle or upper class people as opposed to um, folks with lower incomes is the way to go. Okay. A strand that's been emerging from your work and that of Hillary Seligman and some other folks in this field is this idea of food is medicine. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and in particular community servings and agency that you've partnered partnered with in Boston, kind of how um, how all that came about? Sure. So, I mean, I think the, the idea of food as medicine, um, you know, really gets back to sort of the same kind of vignette that I was talking about at the beginning, this idea that, you know, many of the, of the most common health situations that we see today, so, you know, diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, et cetera, uh, have a large dietary component at the, at the are, are, based in, are based in diet in a lot of ways, or at least diet plays a large role in their development. Um, and so I think the idea of food as medicine is that, well, you know, if uh, adhering to a healthy diet is a, is a major cornerstone of treatment for these conditions, which, you know, almost any guideline, if you read is, if you read the ADA's um, statement of uh, standards of medical care for, for diabetes, you know, a, a healthy diet is a cornerstone of that. Similarly from, you know, AHA and ACC around management of uh, cardiovascular disease, et cetera. So if following a healthy diet is a, is a cornerstone of management for all these conditions and, and 
and preventing these conditions and the situation where you don't already have them, then you know shouldn't we view um, the the provision of of healthy meals for people who can't otherwise uh, afford them or obtain them as a fundamental part of medical care? And so just mm-hmm. as we have you know, mechanisms of healthcare financing through, you know, health insurance and things like that to assist people in affording their medications or assist people in affording their, um, you know, physical therapy after their knee replacement or something like that. Um, you know, should food kind of fit into um, this circumstance? Now, obviously, it's a big ask in some ways. Food, you know, people uh, will need food for the rest of their lives in all cases. And so that, you know, feeding everybody all the time is not necessarily something that you want to take on here. But, but the idea, I think, is can you find specific circumstances where, you know, people might really benefit from this in a way that, um, you know, is akin to many of the other interventions that we, that we feel comfortable with? Uh, supporting like, um, you know, like medications, like sure. home infusions of antibiotics to keep people out of the hospital, like uh, physical therapy, that kind of thing. So that, that's really the idea. Um, Community Servings is an organization that, I, that I've uh, been working with for a few years in Boston. So they're a philanthropy, they're a nonprofit organization. Um, they provide medically tailored meals um, to people with serious illnesses. So um, the, the key components are, you know, one, that these are, these are prepared, delivered, Delivered meals for people, and two that they're really specifically tailored to people's needs. So they're they're uh, rightfully very proud of the fact that they the meals are prepared under the supervision of a registered dietitian, and um, they can. Um, meet 17 or 18 different um, requirements. So if you, if you need a diabetes-specific diet or you need a chronic kidney disease-specific diet, they can do that. And they can combine them in up to three ways. So you can have a large number of combinations, um, which is great because a lot of times people are dealing with multiple situations. So they may have both diabetes and chronic kidney disease, and then maybe they're also on you know, warfarin as an anticoagulant or something like that. So they're, uh, they can really tailor um, these meals quite um, Quite specifically for for what people need, and they do it with um, you know good quality food. Uh, they prepare everything at their you know commercial um, kitchen in Boston. A lot of it is uh, locally grown produce that is donated by uh, by local producers, and so it's it's good quality food, and it I think really serves a niche that um, you know that need that needed to be filled in terms of well, what do you do with folks who are medically very tenuous, but they really can't adhere to the the diet that they need. Sure. You and your partners at Community Servings recently won an award uh, from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation for a study called the Food as Medicine Approach on Health. Can you talk a little bit about the study and uh, where you guys are in the process? Sure. So what we wanted to do here was... um, you know, really answer a, a need that we had found when, when sort of talking about medically tailored meal delivery programs, which is that, you know, when we talk to um, insurers or people in the health policy world, you know, a lot of times people say, sounds great, um, but there are lots of things that, that sound great in the healthcare world, and, you know, we need to make hard decisions about what to, what to spend money on, mm-hmm. um, you know, what to, what to invest in, what to cover. Um, overall, medically tailored meals are a relatively expensive um, intervention per, per yeah. person. They may still be worth it, but it but but it's a, you know, um, compared with, you know, say a, a pill that might be a dollar a day or something like that, um, you know, the meal provision is probably more on the order of $20 a day or something. So, I mean, it's a, it's a relatively um, 
big ticket item in that sense. And so the question is, well, all right, what are the situations where, you know, this really may be worth it? So what, what we're doing is um, linking the clients who've been served by community servings in the past. So again, they did this, you know, purely as a, as a philanthropy. Um, to uh, claims from the Massachusetts uh, all-payer claims database. So we'll look at the insurance um, claims of people who receive these meals. And what we want to do is look at how people who received the meals both before they started getting them and after um, did in terms of their uh, health care expenditures and their, and their health care utilization, so things like emergency department visits and inpatient admissions and those kinds of things. So compare that both before and after. And then also out of the claims database, find a comparison group of people who we think are similar to the folks who got the meals but did not get the meals um, and really use that to estimate um, the effect of the intervention as best we can. Uh, you know, you know, this is not prospective, it's not randomized, so there are mm -hmm. going to be limitations to all that. But the idea is, you know, we at least um, have, you know, about 2,000 people who have been served by this organization over the past five years or so. Um, and, you know, we, we can take a look at what happened to their um, medical use and their medical expenses once they started receiving receiving these meals. Okay. So it's foolhardy to guess what will happen in our healthcare system. And obviously, sure. you know, you don't have the results of your study yet, but, um, you know, based on data that is already out there and kind of your sense of things, if we continue to move in the direction of accountable care and global payments, how do you envision a program like community servings with medically tailored meals kind of fitting into the healthcare system? Sure. Well, so, I mean, I, one thing that I, you know, kind of always think about it in the background, and this is just kind of a, a factoid, is that, um, you know, sort of Western uh, European countries like the, like the Nordic countries or, or France or Germany or the UK and the U.S. spend about the same proportion of their GDP on social services and health care, but the distribution is very different. So the European countries tend to spend um, a higher proportion of that on social services, and the U.S. tends to, tends to spend a higher amount on health care. And we know that in, in a lot of instances, the Western European countries, have uh, the same or better health outcomes for, um, you know, the similar amounts of spending. So what I think is exciting about, you know, accountable um, uh, care organizations or sort of global payments and things like that is that it really gives an opportunity for the, um, for the merging of some of the, of the social spending that we think might have an impact on health along with the healthcare spending that we think may have, a, have an impact on health. So in the traditional sort of fee-for-service system, um, you know, you got paid on um, volume, you got paid when the patient was, was in the office or in the hospital, and then otherwise they're just kind of out there. Mm -hmm. But with global budgeting, you know, you are now seeing healthcare systems that may have a responsibility for a population of patients, whether or not they're physically present in the office or whether or not you're physically providing a service to them at any given time. And so what this does is it opens up the, uh, the opportunity to um, address some factors that we think are at the root of poor health, but aren't, weren't necessarily amenable to sort of traditional, you know, office-based or hospital-based medical care. And that includes things like food and housing and some, some of these other issues. Um, so in that setting, I think organizations like Community Servings and, you know, there are plenty, plenty of other organizations as well, you know, Greater Boston Food Bank and, and organizations that help with housing and many other things may have a larger role to play because they really are the ones with the expertise in, in intervening in these areas, um, which has not historically been an area that the healthcare system has a lot of expertise in. Mm -hmm. sure. 
That being said, I think there's going to, you know, like any type of intervention, there, there's going to be a lot of figuring out, you know, A, does it affect overall? It sound, is it effective overall? It sounds like a great idea, but, uh, but maybe, maybe it just doesn't pan out for some reason. And B, if it is effective, uh, who is it effective for? Is it effective for everyone or is it, is it effective in specific circumstances, people with either particular illnesses or maybe at, at particular times in the course of an illness right after hospitalization or during active chemotherapy or something like that? that. Um, and so I, what I think we'll wind up doing if we sort of move forward with a more sort of um, population uh, health approach and have a healthcare finance um, mechanism that supports that, like accountable care organizations or global payments or something like that, is um, really a lot of innovation around delivering interventions on social factors that influence health and then sort of targeting or risk stratifying these interventions to the to the right uh, groups of people at, at the right times. Um, and so that that's kind of what I see happening over the next five to ten years if we sort of continue on, on this trajectory. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate hearing about your work and sharing your expertise. Well, thanks very much for, for inviting me. It's great to talk about these issues. You've been listening to Review of Systems. You can find links to all the articles and resources that Seth and I discussed on our website, www.rospod.org. If you enjoyed the show, a quick reminder to please rate and view us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us on social media. Tweet us your thoughts at ROS Podcast and check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash review systems. Or you can email us at contact at ROSpod.org. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks for listening. <laughs>